Amen. Thank you. What a great, great reminder and song. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible tonight to the book of Luke in chapter number 12. The book of Luke in chapter number 12. And I'd like to begin in verse number 13. Luke chapter number 12 and verse number 13. And, and uh, how thankful we are for the mighty word of God. What a privilege it is to be able to stand and, and preach this book and to stand in a, 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 and the light of the word of God. A dark, dark world is in desperate need of the light. And the Bible tells us Jesus Christ is that light. I trust you know him as your Savior tonight. You have your Bible to the book of Luke in chapter number 12. You know, as you begin to make your way through this chapter in the Bible, things ought to be awfully somber. I mean, there is preaching, and then there's preaching from the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's a, a very, very different thing. And the Lord Jesus Christ is just preaching some incredibly powerful things. And as you made your way through Luke chapter 12, well, it's pretty much like it always was in the book of Luke. When Jesus preached in front of them, there were his disciples. And of course, every step of the way, he was pouring into them life lessons and, and Bible lessons to make them strong. As Jesus would preach, the multitudes would always gather. I find them to be rather interesting in the Bible. I, I notice that when there's free meals and there's free miracles, there's a big crowd. But one day the meals stop and one day the miracles stop and the crowd is so small, Jesus asked the disciples, will you also go away? And then when Jesus would preach, there were the disciples, there were the multitudes, and then the Bible tells us every time, or so it seems, that there was the religious establishment. Sometimes there'd be the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. I, one by one, they would come to find fault, and with their hypercritical noses stuck up in the air, the, the religious establishment wanted to catch him at his words. They wanted to see if they could get him to stumble and to say something wrong. They hated Jesus with a passion. And now when Jesus begins to preach in Luke chapter 12, he looks at the multitude and he tells them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I mean, folks, we just don't do it like this. There are very few preachers that would ever dare go anywhere near this. But the Lord Jesus pretty much just looks at the people in front of him and he says, you see those guys over there, the religious establishment? You have been trained all your life to think they're holier than you and better than you and higher than you. And and again and again and again, Jesus pointed them out and he said, they're hypocrites and they're phonies. And he said to the crowd, if you're not careful, you're going to wind up like them. Don't be like the religious hypocrites. Then in verse number five, Jesus goes and preaches on that subject that shall never be spoken of in modern houses of religion. Jesus is not only going to preach about hell, but in one verse, Jesus is going to also preach on the fear of God. You know, in modern houses of religion, people can go Sunday morning after Sunday morning. They can do it for months and turn it into years, and they will never hear one warning about hell. They will never hear one command from the Bible to fear God. But in Luke chapter 12, verse number 5, Jesus said, I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. What a thing to say. You know, every one of us tonight, our blood pressure would go through the roof if suddenly there was the blade of a cold knife against our throat and somebody threatened to take our lives. But the Lord Jesus said, as much as you would fear somebody that would kill you tonight, you had better fear the one that could cast you into hell. You know, there are people that read that verse and they read it wrong. 
and they think, well, I guess we better be afraid of the devil. However, the devil never has put anybody in hell. The ne devil never will put anybody in hell. And for the record, the devil is not in hell, nor has he yet been to hell. The Bible tells us in Revelation 20, 11 to 15, that on that great white throne judgment day, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is going to sentence people to hell. Luke 12, 5 is not saying fear the devil. It is saying fear the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, folks, Jesus is preaching on those topics you're not supposed to talk about. I mean, he stands up and he preaches about the hypocrisy of religion. Then the Lord Jesus preaches about the fires of hell, about the fear of God. And when you think it can't get any more sobering, in verse number 11, he looks at his disciples in front of them. And he says, when they bring you into the synagogues and the magistrates and powers, take you no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what you ought to say. Now the Lord Jesus looks at his beloved disciples and he doesn't promise them sweetness and happiness and, and a smooth little path. But the Lord Jesus says they're going to bring in before governors. They're going to bring you in before the political leadership. They're going to bring you in before judges. And there you're going to suffer for me. There you're going to be imprisoned for me. There you're going to pay a tremendous price for me. I mean, all it takes is 11 chapters. And by the time you get through verse number 11, things ought to be awfully quiet. I know there's a big multitude, but today there's no free meal. And today there's no big miracle. Today the Lord Jesus Christ is warning them about tomorrow. He says, don't be like the religious hypocrites he said prepare to meet thy God so you won't be in hell forever and then he tells the ones who follow and love him this isn't going to be easy you're going to pay a tremendous price to serve me you know by now things ought to be really really quiet but then in verse number 13 somebody in the company Somebody in the crowd's got something to say. Brother, this better be really, really important, you know. I mean, this better be really, really big. The guys, I don't know if he's waving his hand, but I kind of picture him doing that, you know. And there's this big crowd of people, and he's got something really, really important for Jesus to handle. Now, brother, whatever you got here, it better be more important than heaven and hell. It better be more important than the fraudulence of religion. It better be more important than people that are one day going to go to jail and they're going to die for the name of Jesus. This guy in the company kind of waving his hand saying, over here, Jesus, I got something really, really important to say. Brother, th this better be really, really important because if it isn't, well, you know, this is going to go down into one of those categories like Cleopas. This is going to go down into one of those forever and forever and forever. And this guy in the company, there he is with his hand up saying, Jesus, I've got something that's really more important. More important than eternity? More important than being saved? More important than suffering for Christ? What is it, man? And in verse number 13, one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. Really? Suppose, you, suppose, suppose we get one shot to speak one time in the Bible. You know, last night we talked about the Hebrew boys, right? If it be so, our God and we serve, you can't do much better than that. Well, this guy gets his one shining moment. 
He gets his one opportunity to, be, to count forever and forever. He has got something to say to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm sorry, sir, but you are so foolish, not my words, God's words. You are so foolish that what you're about to do right now is going to last forever and forever and forever. More important than heaven and hell. Jesus, I need you to tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You know, I say he asked a question, but he really didn't, did he? He really didn't even ask a question. He said, I'll just get right to the, I'll just tell you what to do. You don't even have to investigate this. I'll just tell you what to do. Uh, evidently, his brother was the oldest brother, and he wouldn't share the inheritance, at least not like he wanted. So you tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And in verse number 14, we read this with our American eyes, and we maybe miss the point. But if we looked at this through Jewish eyes, the Lord Jesus Christ is being incredibly offensive to this man. And he said unto him, man. You know, in the language of the Middle East, that is incredibly harsh. Even when Jesus was about to be betrayed, he looked at Judas and said, friend, if you've ever been to the Middle East, you know, I, I know, especially you go to the market, they want your money, but, but it doesn't matter. Everybody's, everybody's my good friend, my good friend from America. What's your name again? My good friend. Everybody's my good friend, my good friend. In the Middle East, you don't look at somebody and say, man. You don't look at somebody and say, woman. And the Lord Jesus was rather rude with the gentleman. Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And Jesus isn't finished. In verse number 15, he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. He started out by looking at the crowd, saying, Don't be hypocrites. Don't be like the Pharisees and the religious establishment. Now the Lord Jesus Christ is going to turn the heat up a little more. He looks at the crowd in front of him, and he points out this guy, saying, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And now he is going to tell the crowd and he is going to tell you and he is going to tell me, don't be like him. Father, we pray for your help as we go to the word of God and, and may the powerful lesson as this man embarrasses himself forever. I pray that tonight you would do your work in this place for men and ladies and young people. And, and Lord, may we understand how quickly our priorities can be wrong. And then if someone in this building has never been saved, I pray that tonight they would run to the Lord Jesus Christ. They would be born again. Oh, Father, I ask you to do something eternal and permanent in this room. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. And the Lord Jesus does what Jesus does perfectly. He puts his finger right on the problem. You know, a pastor will tell you after dealing with people, and I would say for 10 years, but really after like 10 minutes, you learn there's a big difference between the reason and the excuse. And people are forever ready to give you a thousand excuses. This happened, the dog ate the homework, that and the other thing. And, and there is a very rare human that will actually get to the heart of the matter. We talk ourselves into believing the excuses, but the excuses are nothing. There is always the reason behind the excuses. And in one statement, the Lord Jesus puts his finger right on that joker. He points him out and he says, don't be like that man because that man's life is concerned consumed by covetousness. That ever a dirty sin. I mean, it's one of the ten. 
but it's, it's a deep, it's a deadly sin. You know, usually when we think of somebody who's covetous, we think of somebody that says, I need more stuff, I need more toys, I need more for me, more for me. But you know what makes covetousness such a deadly sin? It's got two sides to the coin. On one side, covetousness says, I need more for me. I need more to make me happy. I need a bigger house. I need more money. I need more this. I need more that. Covetousness says on one side, I need more for me. But when you flip the coin over, there is an arrogance to covetousness. And it says, not only do I need more for me, but I need more than you. I need a bigger house than my neighbor. I need a bigger car than the guy on the job. I need more for me so I can be happy, and I need more than you have so that I can look good, and I can pat myself on the back and let myself know how great I am. And that's what makes covetousness so deadly. It's not just a self-inflicted sin. It's a sin that affects everyone around us. And the Lord Jesus Christ, for all the smokescreen, buddy, your problem is not your inheritance, and your problem is not your mean older brother, and your problem is not that you haven't gotten your rights. And your problem is not that you're the victim here. Your problem, sir, is that you have a dirty heart that is full of covetousness. And this is so powerful that Jesus is going to spend the rest of Luke chapter 12 telling the people in front of him, don't be like him. It's really powerful. He starts out by telling the multitude, if you're like him, then one day you're going to die and go to hell because you love stuff more than your own soul. Then he goes on and he tells his disciples, don't be like him because if you're like him, your life is going to be consumed by worry. You're going to fret and you're going to worry that you lose all your stuff. And by the time we get to the end of the chapter, he's still preaching about this guy. Don't be like him because if you're like him, you won't be watching and waiting for Jesus. Instead of watching for Jesus, Jesus to come. You're going to be all consumed about your toys and your treasures and your games and your stuff. I mean, it is not too often that you get a large chapter in the Bible where Jesus is hammering one guy. But somehow this guy managed to get it done. Jesus, I got something here that's more important than heaven and hell. I got something here that's more important than the false religions that are ruining people. Yeah, I got something on the agenda now that's more important than these little disciples here, those poor guys going to jail. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus says to them and to us, don't be like him. He begins with a story. The Bible tells us in verse number 16, he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. If you look at this story and you find a friendly farmer, you got the wrong idea. If you read this story and find a western rancher, you're missing the point. This guy is not a farmer and he is not a rancher. This man is an executive. The Bible doesn't say he's got a farm or a ranch. The Bible says he has ground. The Bible says that he has territory. So we are looking at a man with massive land holdings. We are looking at a man who is incredibly wealthy. When we look at the story that Jesus tells and we think about the, uh, the certain man, the certain rich man that he is speaking about, you know, if I could put it like this, if this guy were alive today, you know where he'd be? He'd be interviewed on CNBC every morning. 
We are looking at somebody that would be Mr. Executive, at somebody that everybody would know, a businessman that has made a name for himself, somebody that's above and beyond everybody else. And the truth is that when it comes to business, this man is absolutely brilliant. Now, if you've read the story, and I'm sure most of you have, you know where it's going. And if you don't know where it's going, spoiler alert, it's going to the place where God points his finger at this guy and says, thou fool. But as Jesus tells the story, fool is the last word these people are thinking. As Jesus tells this story, I mean, to us, he's talking about Warren Buffett. I mean, to us, he's talking about, you know, George Soros. Well, fool might work there after all, but, but to us, he's talking about Mr. Rich. He's talking about Mr. Successful. He's talking about Mr. Wealthy. Why, to us and to the people that day that are listening as Jesus tells the story. And have you ever thought about that? Can you just imagine hearing Jesus tell a story? Can you, just, can you just imagine what that'd be like? I mean, when Jesus said, I got a pair, as soon as he begins, you know, all of a sudden, five minutes later, we got to tell ourselves to blink. All of a sudden, you know, we got to, hey, you better start breathing. Can you just imagine hanging on to every single word that Jesus would say? And Jesus said, there's a certain rich man. And he's got grand territory. And the man is incredibly wealthy. And in verse number 17, he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. So the man is going to carry on a conversation with himself. And this very unusual in the Middle East. You know, no matter what a man does, no matter what decision he makes in his family, in his business, I mean, you have to have a council. You have to have a grand talk. You got to talk it over with everybody, even if you already know what you're going to do. But this guy cuts out the middleman. Because, you know, the truth is the reason he's having a conversation with himself is because he knows he's the smartest guy in the room. And he's going to have a conversation with himself. And if an intelligent businessman is going to have a conversation with himself about business, that's one thing. And when this guy starts talking to himself and figuring out how to make his business bigger and better, well, maybe he's got to because there's, maybe there's nobody else on his level. But when he starts talking to himself about eternity, he's on dangerous ground. So the man starts to talk within himself. And he said, what shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. Now, this is brilliant. You understand, you and I know the story. It gets ruined. But, but to this point, we're listening to Jesus. And we're thinking, CNBC Charlie here. We are thinking about somebody who's an executive, a leading businessman. And everything that he says is just absolutely brilliant. Normal people don't think like this. He says, now, I got a problem, you know, because, uh, and, and you say, well, it doesn't sound like a problem to me, and I say, it doesn't sound like a problem to me, but he knows, oh, yeah, my ground has brought forth plentifully. I've had a bumper crop here, and, and you know, I'm thinking, well, you had a good year, man. Get the beans in, send them down to the market, sell the beans, and, and take the profits and go to Hawaii or something. You know, I mean, how hard is this? But, you know, a, a brilliant businessman doesn't think like everybody else. That's why they're so successful. And this guy says, well, it's been a great year for beans. But the problem is that if I bring all the harvest in and if I take all of my product and I flood the market with my product, all I'm going to do is drive the price of beans down. So he said, this is not a good idea. 
And so in his business brilliance, in verse number 18, he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. You see how smart this guy is? Whereas anybody else would say, sell the profit, man. Get the money in your pocket. That's why most people don't have enough money to get past Saturday night. I mean, 95% of the American people have zero plan when it comes to retirement. And the reason is because they're not like this guy. There is no plan. They don't think about tomorrow. I got the money, man, let me spend the money. I got the money, let me buy a toy. Who needs money? I got a credit card. There's still some room on a credit card. Let me get more for me, more for me. Covetousness, more stuff for me. And this guy is so brilliant. He says, I'm going to build down. See how smart that is? Because you would say, and I would say, okay, okay, you got a bumper harvest here. You want to you wanna have the profit and you want to make money when the price is high. So what you need to do is go build more barns. But this guy is smart. He realizes I can't do that. Because if I go out and build more barns, the barns are going to take up the ground. The ground is what gives me my product. The ground is what gives me my food. So if I go and build more barns, then I'm going to have less ground to bring in product. So the guy says, what I'm going to do is tear down my old barn and I'll build bigger and better barns. You know, people just don't think like this. You see, this is why if he was in America tomorrow morning, he'd be on CNBC. It's because this guy is just a brilliant businessman. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to build better barns. And what do you know in verse 18? He said, there will I bestow all my fruits. You would expect that from territory. But then he also said, in all my goods. So this guy is Mr. Sam Walton. I mean, he not only has the goods, uh, the, the, the grains, he not only has the fruits, he not only has the perishable items, but he has the goods as well. I mean, he was Sam Walton before Sam Walton ever decided to have a grocery store. This guy's got it all. I mean, vast territories. I mean, massive properties. I mean, big barns. He's managing the whole thing. He doesn't need to go talk to anybody. He's got it figured out. Because when it comes to business, there is not a person in the world that would look at this guy and call him a fool. Nobody looks at somebody who started a successful business. Nobody looks at a man, a woman who's made a lot of money. Nobody looks at somebody who has invested their life, they have worked hard, they have labored hard, and they have become successful. Nobody calls them a fool. And so here's a guy that says, I don't need anybody. I've got the answers. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to have a place to bestow my fruits and my goods. And then comes verse number 19. You see, up until this point, the people listening to Jesus, they're saying, what a brilliant guy. What a successful guy. But now in verse 19, the man who said, I'm going to talk to myself, and he carries on a business conversation, now he's going to have a conversation with his soul. And when he has a conversation with his soul, he's going to come to some eternal choices. And while he may be a brilliant businessman, he doesn't know the first thing about the Bible. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Really. This is the kind of thing that happens when you have a conversation with your own soul about eternity. You say, well, if you're not going to talk to your soul, what are you supposed to do? If you're not going to find the answer in your heart, where are you going to find the answer? And Jesus said, search the scriptures, for these are they which testify of me. And the scriptures, you think you have eternal life. If somebody wants to know how to prepare for eternity, if someone wants to know how to be ready to meet God, the answer is don't have a conversation with your soul 
have a conversation with your Bible. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Instead, the man goes to his soul and he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say I have much goods laid up for many years. I'm set. I'm good to go. I'll take it easy. I'll eat, drink, and notice the words, and be merry. You see the thinking of this man. When it comes to building barns, he's brilliant. When it comes to handling property, he's brilliant. When it comes to making money, there's nobody like him. But when it comes to eternity, he's a massive fool. Because you know what he thinks? He thinks that by eating in the best restaurants and by drinking the finest wines, those things will cause me to be a happy, merry man. You see the word, be merry. It is by eating and drinking that I'm going to be happy. So I know, he says, that if I go to the French Riviera and I have a place out there, I know that if the finest foods are on the table, I know that if the best wines are sitting in the chalice, he said, I know that by eating and I know that by drinking, I am going to be a happy, merry man. Only a fool would say such a thing. Excuse me, folks. But if the stuff of the world could make a man a happy man, why are there more witch doc- I mean, psychologists per square inch in Hollywood than anywhere else? I mean, if money made somebody happy, if power made somebody happy, why is the city of Washington full of such miserable people? If power and riches and wealth and all the things that you think you got to have and I think I got to have and, and the world says this is what's going to make you powerful. When you do your own thing, when you are your own boss, when you run your life the way you want to run it, you're going to be the happiest person. And quite frankly, folks, uh, 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 all I've ever seen is that the people who live for me, me, me are the most miserable people in the whole country. They are. They never smile. The people that are living more money for me, they never have enough. The people that are living for more pleasures, they're never happy. I I mean, the people that live for me and think, I can tell my, I'm going to eat, I'm going to drink, and it's going to make me a happy man. They have to go get so drunk on Saturday night or Friday night that they wake up the next day with a hangover. They have to live so wickedly. They have to go so far. They have to forget their misery and their booze and their drugs. Eat, drink is going to make me a merry man. There is not one person that ever ate their way to happiness. There is not one person that ever drank their way to happiness. Eat, drink, and I will be merry is the story of a real fool. So here's a guy that's incredibly smart. He wakes up, and in the morning hours when he's sitting at the table running his business, boy, does he ever have it down. But when it gets to the afternoon and the guy relaxes and think by eating and drinking, I will be a merry man. I will take it easy. I will enjoy my life. I'll have the good life from here on out. The man is about ready to realize he has an appointment that he's not ready for. And so while he convinces himself that I will take it easy, I will eat and I will drink and I will be merry, in verse number 20, the Bible tells us, but God said unto him, thou fool. In the New Testament, there are five different kinds of fools, descriptions of fools. I mean, one fool is somebody that God says, you know, you're missing this. It's really not as offensive as it sounds. It's God saying you lack discernment. You need to learn some things. Not this time. This word fool has given us the English word moron. 
It would be awfully hard for God to be more insulting. Just like the Lord Jesus looked at that man and said, man, in a sense, what a joker you are. Now God is looking at Mr. Businessman. He is looking at Mr. CNBC, and he is saying, sir, you don't even know what a fool you are. You're a moron. Man, God said, thou fool. And why would God say this man's a fool? And could I remind us all one more time that if we're sitting here listening to Jesus tell the story, the word fool is not in our vocabulary right now. We are thinking this guy is rich. We are thinking this guy is smart. We are thinking this guy's going to take it easy. This guy's going to have a cottage here. He's going to have a house there. He's going to have one down on the beach. This guy isn't. He, everything people want, he's got it all. The last word running through our minds right here is the word fool. But God said unto him, thou fool. And why? Because this night, tonight, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Hey, God says, you realize, sir, you're never going to have time to go to that restaurant. And you're never going to have time to drink that wine. You're never going to have time to go on your vacation. You're not going to have time to enjoy your beach house, your house up in the woods. You're not going to Tahoe. God looks at the man and says, sir, what you don't understand is that tonight, tonight, Thy soul shall be required of thee. You say, well, does that mean tonight he's going to die? It means something other than that. You know, we look at it and say, well, the guy's going to die. The guy's going to die. But that's not exactly what God said, did he? You see, we look at eternity and we watch somebody leave their life here and we say, the guy died. That's the way we describe it. But God looks at it very differently. And God looks at this man and said, sir, it's not that tonight you're going to die. Tonight your soul will be required. For a businessman, God couldn't have chosen a better word. That word required came out of their business world. When a banker would give out a loan, there came a time when the loan had to be repaid. That repayment day was when the loan was required. For a businessman, this is the perfect word because this guy spent his life spending money, investing money, using money. And every time he did, there was a requirement. Every time there did, there was a payback. Every time he did, there was interest. So now here is God looking at Mr. Businessman and God is saying, sir, I have made an investment in your life. I have given you an ability that nobody else has. I have given you an opportunity to create wealth like very few humans could ever do. God is saying, sir, I have made an investment in your life, and one day when you meet me, it is not that you die. It is that you're going to be required to give an account. See, we, we look at this so differently. My life here. But Brown, you know, as far as this goes, it's my life, and I'm going to do what I want, go where I want, be what I want. I mean, I got it all planned out. I mean, you get some kids, you know, 17, 18, ready to graduate in a year or two from high school. I'm going here, and I'm going there, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and I'm going to be this, and I'm going to be this. And by the time I'm 22, this is going to be true, and 24 here, and 30 here. They got it all figured out. And, and you know what you very rarely ever hear anymore? And I mean even in churches like Bible Baptist Church. You rarely hear a 17 or 18-year-old high school student say, my life is for the will of God. 
I'll go where he wants me to go and I'll do what he wants me. Oh, no, I got my plans and I'm going here and I'm doing this. And I guess if the Lord wants to, he could change things, but he better not. Because I got this plan and I got that plan. And there's a God in heaven that says, hold on right there, Bible Baptist Church. God says, I have made an investment in you. Now, for every saved person here tonight, the greatest investment the Lord ever made in you or he ever made in me is called the cross of Calvary. The Lord Jesus didn't just die. He died for our sins. He didn't just go to a cross. He was crucified for you and for me. God gave his only begotten son that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight God has made a great investment so you and I could be rescued from hell forever. How are you going to pay back that investment to him? But there's more, isn't there? Somebody in this building tonight, God's given you the ability to sing. That doesn't mean that you get to walk around investing the talent that God gave you uh, on your own loss. I'm going to sing this and I'm going to sing that. God gave you a voice so you can sing for him. God gave somebody in this building the ability to do well in business. And you've got to mind, maybe something like this guy. He didn't do that so you could have your toys and treasures and eat, drink, and be merry and have your parties and your good times and, and be on vacation all the time. He did that so your business acumen could be used for the will of God. Everything, everybody in this building, I mean, a New Testament church is a body that God fitly formed together. And your talent and your ability is a gift of God that God has given you so you can use it for his glory. But I will promise you one day, if somebody says, it's my life and I'm wasting it on me and I'm going where I want, I'm doing what I want to do, there is coming a requirement day. You say, wait a minute, this guy's not saved and I'm saved. But look at verse 21. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You know, we all look down at some fool who would rather drink his way into hell or eat his way into hell or somebody who says, yeah, I'm not going to go to church. Why do I want to hear Pastor Brown preach? On Sunday, that's my day. On Sunday, I go fishing and I go golfing and I go hunting and I watch football and I play sports. And on Sunday, it's my day. I'm not going to sit in a church service. I'm not going to give God 45 minutes to tell me how to escape hell. And we all look at somebody like that and say, what a fool they are. You don't even care enough about eternity. You don't even care to invest an hour a week. You don't even want to sit under the Bible and learn how to be saved. And you and I scratch our head and say, how could somebody be so foolish? But there is an answer to that question. The reason somebody could be so foolish as say, I'm going to go hunting, fishing, golfing. I'm going to watch football. I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. And I have no time for the Bible. No time, brother. You know why? They do that because they're lost. That may be a bad excuse, but at least it is one. The real question, according to this story, is why are God's people doing the exact same things that the pagans do? You know, somebody who's been bought by the blood of Jesus, somebody who's been saved by the grace of God, who decides, I'd rather go hunting on Sunday morning than be in the house of God doing what the Lord... I mean, what does God ask for? He gives you the rest of the week. This is the Lord's day, not the NFL's day. It's the Lord's day, not hunting day. It's the Lord's day, not family reunion day. It's the Lord's day, not fishing day. It's the Lord's day, not fun and games day. It's the Lord's day, not my day. And, you know, I understand when unsaved people live like unsaved people, but I don't get it why Christians could say, oh, I'll take your salvation. I'll take your eternal life. I'll take your escape from hell. I'll take the blessedness. I'll take the peace. I'll take all that. <laughs> Forget about me giving back anything to you. 
I'm going to eat and I'm going to drink and maybe not the booze, but I'm going to eat, drink and be, maybe the booze nowadays in most churches. I'm going to eat, I'm going to drink, I'm going to be merry, I'm going to live for me, I'm going to do what I want. And God says, you understand, one day your soul will be required. Now the unsaved person on requirement day is going to stand at the great white throne. They're going to be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. But make no mistake about it, there's a judgment day for those of us who are saved. It is not called the great white throne. It is called the judgment seat of Christ. And on that day, you're gonna get, I'm going to give an account of our lives. Did my life count for Jesus? Uh, you could save me. You could give me eternal life. You could wash my sins away. Jesus could leave the glories of heaven and die on a rugged cross to rescue me from hell. And one day, we're going to give an account. Did my life count or did my life not count for Christ? I got to tell you. Uh, like the Apostle Paul said, I am terrified of that day. You know, if a guy who started, give or take a few, 150, maybe 160 churches, who said, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ, who said, thrice was I, once I was stoned, thrice I suffered a shipwreck night and a day, I've been in the deep and journeys often in perils of waters, robbers, you know the verse. If that guy could say, I am terrified. And I got to tell you, maybe I, I'm supposed to be a little more nervous about this. I can tell you who I don't want to be, brother. I don't want to be somebody who said, <laughs> I took the grace of God. I took Jesus. He saved me. I don't want to be the one who's got to explain why on Sunday morning I decided that hunting, fishing, golfing, football, baseball, or anything else is more important than obeying Jesus. I just don't want to be that guy. Maybe you got a good answer. I hope you do because you're going to need it one day. No, this is not, we're going to die, and then we're going to go rowing into heaven, and it's all going to be wonderful and good, and glory to God, and you're going to go around slapping Brother Brown on the back, and hey, this great stuff. And no, no, we're going to give an account. And it's going to be sober, and it's going to be serious, and there's a lot of Christians that are literally going to watch the trophy of their life go up in smoke. One day, there is requirement day. You've heard the story. Brother Brown may have told it. Most preachers use this one regularly. The, the story of those two guys that were at the cemetery and their millionaire brother, a buddy, had died. And there weren't a whole lot of people there. And as the casket was being lowered into the hole, you know, one of the guys leaned over to the other guy and he said, I wonder how much did he leave? And you know the classic answer, right? The guy leaned over and he said, he left it all. Well, I've got my version of this story. One day the Lord descends from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And one day in the twinkling of an eye, millions of God's people are out of here. I mean, the song says when the saints go marching in, I think technically it's when the saints go flying in. It's really going to be something. And in my version of the story, when Jesus comes and the saints go flying in, there's going to be two angels watching the whole thing. And as the saints go flying in, one angel leans over to the other and says, how much did they leave behind? And the answer is going to be, they left it all. Either we lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break through and steal, or we have nothing there. And on requirement day, God is going to look at you. He's going to look at me. He's going to say, I made an investment in you. I invested the blood of my son in your soul. I invested breath in you. I invested talent in you. I invested money in you. I invested ability in you. God is going to say one day, I have invested much in you. 
and now on requirement day, God's expecting a return on his investment. So what kind of return are we going to give him? Here's this guy waving his hand in the middle. I wonder if he ever began to think that in 2,000 years, people are still going to know what a fool he was. Uh, you know, a guy like this probably didn't even realize what a fool he was on that day. But he certainly exposed himself, didn't he? I don't want to hear about heaven and hell. I don't want to hear about religion sending me to hell. I don't want to hear about your disciples suffering and going to jail and standing before judges and magistrates. He's, I got something way more important. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And God said unto him, thou fool. Because on requirement day, it isn't going to matter whether you got that inheritance or not. The truth is, when that guy's requirement day, you know what his kids were doing? Doing the same thing he's doing now, having a big fight. On requirement day, only what's done for Christ is going to count. Years ago, one of the most famous Americans, an, an entertainer that, that traveled the world singing, and, and you know, by all accounts, whether you liked him or not, the guy had an incredibly golden voice. An amazing voice, a Hollywood star, an entertainer in only the highest places. And America's favorite, perhaps for time, was a guy called Frank Sinatra. What a singer. Frank Sinatra was famous for a lot of things. Famous for his acting, famous for his golden voice, famous for a lot of, I'm afraid that he was also famous for a lot of sorry things. Frank Sinatra was famous for his fornication and his immorality. Famous for his four wives, famous for multiple affairs. He was famous for his drinking. Did you ever stop to look at the city of Chicago and every single week, it's like this week was worse than last week. It's hard to do that. I mean, every weekend, it's like, oh, this week was a good week. Only 25 people were murdered on our streets. And like, oh, nothing to see. Do you know there was a time when the dirty, vile city of Chicago that is the moral sewer of America, and that's saying a lot because there's a lot of cities that are in neck and neck with it. But you know, there was a time when God gave the city of Chicago a mighty preacher. And a man named Billy Sunday, with courage and boldness, stood up and he preached against the liquor establishments and the bars, and he preached against the booze like no preacher in American history preached. He was in Chicago preaching like that, and Billy's, I'm sorry, Frank Sinatra wrote a song, and the song was written to mock and to taunt Bible preachers like Billy Sunday. Okay, how did that work out, Chicago? All you have to do is read the paper. Frank Sinatra was famous for his violence, his booze, his crime associations, and a lot of things Frank Sinatra was famous for, but I suppose... At the top of the list, he was most famous for a song that he sang. It went like this. And now the end is near. And so I'll face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. This is what he sang. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway and much, much more. This is what he sang. I did it my way. Really? And nobody would argue that. Nobody. 
Mr. Sinatra, you did it your way. You lived your life on this planet your way. You partied your way. You drank your way. You fornicated your way. Uh, you lived a vile, disgusting life your way. You brought so much violence and wickedness in America. You did it all your way. Without any question and without any doubt, Frank Sinatra did it his way. Right up and until May the 14th, 1998. That's when Frank Sinatra died. Down the road from here in Cathedral City, California, they buried Frank Sinatra. And as they buried him, they buried him with Jack Daniels in both of his hands. Everything's a big joke, isn't it? But the minute Frank Sinatra sucked his last breath of air, the God of heaven had a message for him. Oh, no, no. The rest of the world fawning over this great singer. And I'm sure you could even find some spineless false prophet that had Frank Sinatra in heaven. They always seem to find a way, don't they? That's not what God said. Frank Sinatra did it his way, but on requirement day, God said, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. What good is all that junk you're not saved God has invested his son to save you from hell and if you're going to reject him and say no to him and shove him away and postpone him you do to your eternal peril of the lake of fire if you know Jesus Christ as your savior tonight God has made a great investment in me and a great investment in your pastor and a great investment in you but make no mistake about it like any one of us in this place that have ever made an investment God is expecting a return. What kind of return is he getting from your life or from my life? And God said unto him, sir, tonight, you're not going to die. Tonight is your requirement day. Father in heaven, I pray that even now you would do a great work in our hearts and in our lives. And Lord, we watch a man ridiculed for eternity who thought that his barns, his goods, his inheritance, his money was more important than the false religion destroying his life, more important than heaven and hell, more important than living for Christ. Oh, Father, in this building tonight, there are people tempted to be just like that man. And so I pray that the sober warning of Luke chapter 12 would reach into our souls tonight and change everyone. For somebody who needs Christ, may you help them understand today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to prepare to meet God. I wonder before I finish praying, if someone in this room tonight would say, Preacher, I'm the one who needs to be saved. I'm the one who needs Christ. Prepare to meet thy God. I must do that, and I must do that tonight. I don't know that I am going to heaven. I don't know that Jesus Christ is my Savior. Preacher, please pray for me tonight. I would love to be able to pray for you, and we'd like to open God's Word and help you from the Bible because the answer never has been get religion. The answer is go to the Bible and see the Savior. Is there someone tonight in this room that would say, Preacher, pray for me. I'm the one who needs to be saved. Pray for me. Would you just quietly raise your hand, and, and I'll pray for you tonight. And if you'll let us, Brother Brown wants to help you from God's Word. Pray for me. I want to be saved. I want to know that I am prepared and ready to meet God. If I were to die like that man today, I'm not sure I'm saved. Pray for me. Help me tonight. Is there somebody like that? Would you lift that hand and let me pray for you? Sure, we'll be glad to pray for you tonight. Somebody else along with these, that's me. That's me.
Lord Jesus, help us understand we have to prepare to meet God. May tonight be that night a man, a woman, even a boy or girl in this room who's not saved understands that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. I pray they will be saved. Now help your people. Lord, may our priorities change. May we live for eternity. May we invest our lives in things that matter. May we understand the great investment you have made in our lives. Help us in Jesus' great name. Would you stand together with me prayerfully tonight and as we begin to play that invitation song, this altar's a great place to say I need to rearrange my priorities. All the excuses I give on the outside to cover up a covetous heart on the inside needs to be dealt with here tonight. If somebody in this room would say, Preacher, tonight if I met my Savior, I'm afraid I'd have to bow my head. I'd leave it all behind. I need to start living for Jesus and start living for eternity. Tonight, God deals in your heart. This altars. If you need help and somebody to pray with you, say a word to your pastor. Or would you come and do business with him? And of course, if you're not saved, I invite you to come right now. And if you'll make your way to the front, we'd love to meet you and open the Bible and help you prepare to meet your God. Would you come?